This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... Ukraine, a country at war after a huge Russian military offensive by land, sea and air. It was quite shocking waking up in the morning to, to that news, I remember. UNHCR already, like on the first day, was saying 100,000 people had been displaced. President Putin, stop your troops from attacking Ukraine. Give peace a chance. The UN was here to prevent new wars from happening. Then I think we can clearly say this part of the UN failed. The Red Cross again sought to reach the besieged city of Mariupol this week as people tried to flee. I think there's a big challenge on the Geneva Conventions and many other multilateral organizations. The International Committee of the Red Cross has been accused of being overly cooperative with Moscow. The ICRC has to be neutral, has to talk to all sides. Today, there is a beacon on the Black Sea, a beacon of hope. A beacon of possibility. The Grain Deal, allowing grain exports to resume in the Black Sea, was one of the major achievements of UN diplomacy. The sun beats down relentlessly on the parched landscape here in eastern Somaliland. We see the signs of the drought everywhere we look. Compounding crises that are going to make going forward into the next year very, very challenging. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, and it's that time of year again. It's already December and we're going to have a look back at, I think, what we all agree is a very eventful year. And to join me, I've got three of my colleagues from Geneva. We're going to give you the journalist's perspective, what we were working on in 2022, what we think we'll be working on in 2023, and uh, how we, we may be our version of the state of the world. So welcome to Nina Larsen, Agence France Press, Dorian Burkhalter from Swiss Info, and Christian Ulrich from the Deutsche Presse Agentur, the German press agency. Um, I think there's no point starting anywhere else for 2022 than what's kind of been dominating our coverage from February, and that is... Ukraine. Well, I'm quite interested. Maybe I'll start with you, Christiane. Um, that day, February 24th, what do you remember about it? What were you, what did you wake up and think when you realized what had happened? We kind of had a feeling here in Geneva, hadn't we? Yeah, I think no one was really surprised, although the horror is never something you are ready for. But for me, from the German perspective, I immediately thought this might be another Wir schaffen das moment. You remember that was the... Angela Merkel of the refugees, we can handle this. Yes. Yeah. And um, it was clear there is already a Ukrainian community in Germany that there would be a lot of influx. So Geneva perspective, obviously the U UN, um, UNHCR, I was expecting to be covering that extensively. And obviously we did. Dorian, what about you from Swiss Info? Yeah, well, I've got to say I was actually sort of surprised um, because, I mean, in the month that led to the war in January, we had quite a few meetings between uh, U.S. and um, Russian high-level officials. And um, I remember talking to experts and uh, diplomats and, you know, they were saying it's a good sign that they're still talking. Perhaps they've come to some kind of a tacit agreement 
And I think, you know, they didn't really want to believe that a member of the permanent, the Security Council, permanent member, would uh, attack uh, another sovereign state. Yeah, <laughs> surprise. I might have shared that a certain amount as well. Nina, what about you? Yeah, I, th I think, uh, as Dorian said, there was uh, there were all these meetings in Geneva and there was all this uh, diplomatic fervor around trying to, to work things out. And in Ukraine, they were trying to play down uh, the danger of a war. But I, I think we were all expecting it anyway, but not perhaps at that time. It was uh, it was quite shocking waking up in the morning to to that news. I remember immediately being you know plunged into the humanitarian agencies here with their uh, warnings about what was coming and uh, what had already happened. You know, seeing that UNHCR already, like on the first day, was saying 100,000 people had been displaced. It was shocking. These Ukrainians have just escaped the horrors of their home. Families with nowhere to go, carrying just a suitcase and the clothes on their backs. The UN is now raising its estimates to at least 442,000 people who have now become refugees. That was our big focus, the, the humanitarian, after the, the failed diplomacy. I mean, I have to confess... I actually was sucked into thinking this is a bluff. Putin's bluffing Ukraine to try and get some kind of concession. They're not going to do it. But as you say, Nina, with the refugees and the displaced, I still couldn't quite, even though we've seen waves of refugees it's so in Syria and so on, we've seen the many Myanmar. And yet when the UNHCR said this is the biggest refugee crisis since the Second World War, I was like, what? Let me check those figures again. But in fact... And now here we are, 10 months later, and this is a war that looks like it's settling in for, you know, regroup over the winter, start again. I mean, like like 100 years ago, which is kind of depressing. Does anybody have any prognosis on that? Could we hope for anything in 23 in terms of diplomacy? I don't see that at all. I don't yeah. see it at all because... There are no signs, even, you know, off the record, there are no signs coming out from any of the missions that there are any... Well, apart from the Russians, who say we're ready to talk peace. Might be but a only on our man. terms. Yeah. Once we've denazified Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. Once we've got the bits we want. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, you have to ask how long they can sustain human beings against Western weapons, if Russia can really do that for a long, long time. They've already lost more people than they lost in 10 years in Afghanistan, apparently. But the Russian people probably do not know about that. Yeah, or certainly not outside of the, yeah. the urban centers. Although that brings me neatly on to something else I wanted to talk about. And Dorian, you've actually think been writing about this this year, is that we're talking about how much people know about everything. This is the first war where we have really seen IT technology, information technology, playing a role, whether it's hacks, whether it's, uh, you know, cyber attacks, which apparently did happen from Russia against Ukraine, but a lot of them failed, interestingly. Yeah. Um, well, it's true. That's also another thing we were hearing before the war. No, this is the first time, you know, we might see cyber attacks really being part uh, of a conflict. And, uh, you know, Russia is a cyber superpower they call it and uh, i think you know still to the general public we maybe haven't really seen the consequences of these uh, cyber attacks but uh, interestingly there is an ngo in uh, 
Geneva, which is called the Cyber Peace Institute, which tracks actually cyber attacks that have targeted civilians and uh, civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. And uh, I checked this afternoon, they've actually uh, recorded 800 uh, attacks. That's, I had no idea it was so much. I knew that there had been some and that some of them had failed because of preparation. But yet, this is like 21st century warfare. Mm -hmm. And the other side of it, which also I was writing a bit about, was the real campaigns on social media from one side and the other. Disinformation. I mean, the Russians are being sold all sorts of nonsense if they really believe that Ukraine is a Nazi country, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but in Ukraine as well, so that in, was it in March? The ICRC put out this quite unprecedented statement saying it was facing a concerted campaign of disinformation about its work in Ukraine and that there had even been attacks on the Ukrainian Red Cross offices in mm -hmm. Kyiv because people felt the ICRC is not siding with us. And yet, of course, for humanitarians, it's not their job to take sides. Nina, I see you nodding there. So. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's it's always it's probably difficult in a situation like this where emotions are running so high to to understand that uh, an organization like the ICRC has to be neutral, has to talk to all sides, and I think that there hasn't been quite that understanding, or perhaps perhaps they haven't wanted to understand, but uh, there have been massive attacks on the ICRC, and they also had this massive data breach also, but that was earlier earlier in the year. Earlier, but they interestingly said it looked like something that a state rather than mm. an yes. individual would, yeah. would have been able to do. And it was that was a big shock, I think, mm -hmm. to the to the organization. So, and I think that the the ICRC is really uh, taking a hit in the war. But uh, they're supposed to be there to guarantee the Geneva Conventions uh, mm -hmm. on both sides, you know, to show they are. Yeah. But the the warring parties have to play ball. And what they've told me is that they don't have access to prisoners of war on both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been mainly yeah. on the Russian yep. side up until now. Which doesn't leave the Geneva Conventions in a very good place. Not at all, mm. no. I, I think there's a big challenge on the Geneva Conventions and many other multilateral organizations. They were put in place on the basis of decency on all sides, that people would adhere to standards irrespective of whether they agreed on things or not. And that is challenged. And I think neither the UN nor the ICRC have found a way of dealing with this new challenge? Not really, no. I mean, I did hear the ICRC saying, you know what, it's in both sides' interest because the other side has got your guys and you've got theirs and all their families want to know how they are. So it's mutually of interest to allow us in. But that does presuppose at least a grain of decency, which doesn't seem, sadly, to be there. We've spent a third of our podcast talking about Ukraine. And I wonder if that's reflected also in the attention that the world is giving to crises. The world's humanitarian response system is being tested to its limits. That is the warning coming from the United Nations tonight as it launches the largest appeal for aid funding in its history. The UN is appealing for a record $51.5 billion for next year. 
It says that's what's needed to support 230 million of the most vulnerable people across the planet. So what's driving up this need for aid? We've just seen a massive appeal from the UN, $51 billion, 25% more than last year. Part of that is Ukraine, but there's also other stuff, again, with a kind of a knock-on effect. Christian, before we started recording, you were talking about climate change. Of course, we've got Somalia, we've got the Horn of Africa, impending famine. This is climate-driven. I think it's just the compounding effects here. It was already a crisis. There was also the COVID effect. Now the, the grain crisis, the, the fallout from the war. And it sounds like the perfect storm. Yes, I think climate change is the, is the, the very big underlying factor. Well, it's that's the fifth successive drought, isn't it? In, in, in Somalia, Somalia, yes. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it, these compounding crises that are going to make us going forward into the next year very, very challenging. How do we think the UN, you know, what's its scorecard? You mentioned grain. They did achieve this grain deal. Dorian and Nina, I think you've you both been writing about that. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, if we think about the, the UN scorecard, I think what is also interesting to look at is if we look at the idea, you know, the, the peace and security pillar of the UN, you know, the idea that the UN was here to prevent new wars from happening, then I think we can clearly say this part of the UN failed. Um, but I mean, it's just the way things are. If, if Russia can have its veto in China as well, then that's going to happen. But then we've had, on the other hand, the humanitarian community responding really well to uh, the war and its consequences uh, with also the food crisis. And uh, it's true, I think the, the, the grain deal allowing grain exports to resume in the Black Sea was one of the major achievements of UN diplomacy since the start of the war. It was this a success for the UN Secretary General then, Antonio Guterres, who let's not forget when he first took office as SecGen, climate change was going to be his absolute focus. He hasn't had a lot of chance, really, has he? No, I, I think not. But I think I, I do think that the uh, the Black Sea uh, grain deal has been a success for him and for the UN uh, in general. It has uh, helped avoid hunger for perhaps millions of people, you know, or helped at least alleviate the, the food crisis, food insecurity crisis. So I do think that is a positive notch in his, uh, his belt, maybe. But uh, on climate change... Not sure. One point, you yeah. know, when we talk about the scorecard for the UN, for example, the UN is the countries that are in mm. it. You know, it's 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 very easy to kind of separate that and pretend that the UN is failing something, mm -hmm. but it's actually, you know, it's us. It's uh, it's all the governments, right? So, I always find that difficult. This yeah, is right. the Geneva Correspondence mantra. Because I find it incredibly frustrating. I have editors who say to me, oh, the UN, they're useless. Blah, blah, blah. They couldn't even decide on this. And I said, well, but, you know, our country didn't vote for it. Our member state didn't vote for it. And I think people tend to forget that. They think the UN is some body that, like a god, they expect yeah. the aid agencies to be saints and never to make a mistake. And they expect perfect textbook humanitarian decisions and prevention of wars. But as you said, Dorian, if a member of the a permanent member of the Security Council wants to start a war, they can start a war, no problem. Mm. And no mm. one can stop them. Nobody mm. can stop them. I mean, mm. we, the, the Security Council has been paralyzed. For well, they found some nice ways of using the um, General Assembly, right? Yeah. 
And, and the Human Rights Council. Yes. yes. Yeah. I think we're, get, we're maybe getting a little bit detailed for, for some of our listeners, <laughs> but I think that that General Assembly thing where if somebody vetoes in the, in the Security Council, they then have to explain their decision. We have to see how much shame the Russians and the Chinese have. They haven't enjoyed the one or two experiences that they've had so far doing that. So I think that's, that's going to be one to watch in 23. These are the camps China doesn't want you to see. Now, the UN's human rights chief will be in China this week. Late last night, the UN's human rights chief released a report accusing the Chinese government of possibly committing crimes against humanity. Did somebody mention China? <laughs> because that, <laughs> we're all, um, that has been our other big focus, hasn't it? Nina, you asked to bring this up, so I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> well, I think that uh, the focus on China at the Human Rights Council or human rights, the UN human rights system in general has been a big focus this year in parallel with the Ukraine war. That's been one of the biggest focuses uh, in Geneva where there's been all this excitement about whether or not the UN human rights system would actually have the courage to address the allegations of massive rights violations in Xinjiang. And we were waiting and waiting and waiting <laughs> for this report. Were you up all night? I was up, of night. course. I mean, we were waiting for almost a year, I think, mm-hmm. for this report to appear from the, the former human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet. They kept putting it off, mm-hmm. and she went, she went to China. She was criticized for not being critical enough. And then... We kept waiting, and it arrived, I think, 13 minutes before her term ended. 13 minutes before midnight. Yes, before her term and ended. And then all of your programs or your <laughs> editors, my programs, yeah. want the story. I yeah. think I was doing television in my pajamas. Right. But yeah. it had teeth. I mean, it that was, was a thing. good thing in the it, end, wasn't it? We were worried it wouldn't be, yeah. but it was. It, it was. was a good mm-hmm. report. And they helpfully, I have to say, uh, drew our attention to the relevant paragraphs at five minutes. Yes. Midnight. But I thought Michelle Bachelet with that trip to China, we talked about this on an earlier podcast. It was a bit, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. She was really under pressure to go. What did it achieve? I mean, a terrible press conference in Beijing. Mm, um, probably would have been better not to do a press conference at all and fly out. Well, that, there you see the pressure yeah. of the Chinese system. She would probably not have been able to do that, to fly out without a press conference. I mean, there was massive pressure on her from all sides, but uh, mainly from China, but also from the Western countries. And we were hearing from the diplomats here all the pressure they were putting on her mm-hmm. to to get this done. So I, I think it wasn't an enviable position. She no, was not in. at all. Not to mention the really big human rights groups. I mean, Human Rights mm. Watch was quite vitriolic. I mean, I don't blame them. I think they have had eyes and ears on Xinjiang province for quite some time. Mm. But there's a reason they call UN Human Rights Commissioner the toughest job at the Mm. UN. I think it really, really is. You can't do nice things like bring food to hungry people, you know, or medicines, (laughs) you know, or distribute vaccines, COVID vaccines. No, you have to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not very nice. You've been naughty. Mm. In defense of Michelle Bachelet, I think... It wasn't her own decision to leave it until 13 minutes before her term was up. I think there was still something going on between China and her office until that time because they were trying to push her 
over they the have, limit, they've right? They've stalling and stalling and stalling. That's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that's the protocol here at the United Nations yes. that the concerned country, in this case China, gets to see the report before the public does. And so China would take it, take it couple of months reading it, change some wording, send it back. UN Human Rights would look at it and say, we can't have that wording. They would change it, send it back to China, another couple of months. And so as you say, that's not really the UN Human Rights Commissioner's fault. You need to abide by this protocol. Austria's Volker Turk has been appointed as the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Volker Turk, he is the UN's new Human Rights Commissioner and he joins us from Geneva. The old methods and the fortress mentality of those who wield power simply don't work. The UN Human Rights Commissioners are different personalities. We have a new one, Volker Turk. What are we thinking? I mean, from my point of view, he seems to have kind of hit the ground running. Very outspoken. Yeah. It's a breath of fresh air, I would say. But he uh, definitely seems to be uh, not be afraid of speaking up on a broad range of issues and, and also fairly very reactive, I think. That's right. I mean, there have been quite a lot of press releases. It's not always great for us, one press release after another. But right now, we're, we're in the studio. He's in Ukraine. And, I, you know, he's new in the door there. So I think that's good. What, what's your take, Dorian? Oh, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, I agree he's been really vocal and also on interesting issues. I guess when uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter, he also put out a fairly interesting open letter to him, uh, you know, reminding him of his responsibility when it comes to human rights, when you lead such an important platform. And yeah, I mean, he's been traveling, as you said, he's in Ukraine, he was in Sudan. We'll have to see what he does uh, next year, I guess. The key test is going to be China. Though. And China is going to be... He, a, a we have test. heard that he is not prepared to let it lie, but we'll see. He was he obviously could, left holding the bag, you know, because left, yep. <laughs> he has to deal with, you left know, not holding the poison chalice. <laughs> I mean, right. because he may want to do something, but realistically, what? He could introduce that report into, or he could mention it in his speech and make it a topic that way when the next Human Rights Council starts in February, in March? Late February. Early. Yeah, the big one where all the foreign ministers mm. usually come. Yeah, he could. But of course, it's the member states of the UN Human Rights Council, who voted not to debate that report. I mean, not even a resolution, just a debate. China's lobbying worked. Yes. So Russia got censured and China, nothing. We're coming almost to the end, but I, uh, that's one of the things, if we look ahead to next year, one of the things I'm going to be watching is the UN really as powerless as it has appeared over the last year or two towards China and its approach to human rights, which human rights groups are really, really concerned about. This idea that it's not, that individual human rights are not important, it's collective, it's not even rights, is it, when China talks about it, it's a collective well-being kind of thing. I mean, there seems to be a, I mean, there's long been a philosophical push and pull within the council and within the UN about what, how to define human rights and I think that the the vote on China, where China avoided to even have the Xinjiang report put onto the agenda of the council, was a bit of a blow to to the order that has been there, where it's been, you know, the Western countries who've called the shots more, you know, it's been the universal definition of human rights, that individual rights and not uh, economic rights, uh, as uh, China would like to define them as, you know, pulling people out of poverty 
but perhaps not granting them the right to say or or gather in the way they want to. But Volker Türk might be the person who who is right in his forceful way of saying no. It's both. You know, there's no there's no problem to define human rights. We all know what they are. They are both. He was very he forceful has said at that. this, and I think it's quite good to see a. UN human rights chief who's identified this ideological split because it has been coming for a while. We see it from other member states who don't like what they call finger pointing. They always say, no, it's human rights should be defended and promoted through encouragement, not through blame. And this is really difficult when you look at something like Myanmar and the Rohingya or Tigray. We're past the stage of encouragement. Mm in this kind of thing. There is only calling out. Dorian? And I think also on this, um, you know, when you think about this ideological battle between collective or individual rights, I think he said as well, you know, when you're the victim of a human rights violation, it doesn't really matter this sort of intellectual debate, uh, you know, was it a collective right? Was it a, an individual right? And maybe that's one way for him to to push for a consensus is if, if he focuses on the victims, because uh, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Final question then, 2023. We mentioned earlier the UN's got this massive appeal that thinks it's going to need $51 billion. UN appeals are never fully funded. But what are we looking at in terms of things we're going to be focusing on in 23? Because I worry that this fifth successive drought, we had a report from MSF just today saying they're noting hunger in Nigeria way away from the area identified as a crisis point for malnutrition. It's very difficult to try and be not too gloomy. You know, I think the the, the hunger and the famine and the debt crisis that these governments, these governments in the global south are facing is going to be a big story next year. If I'm trying to grab for something more positive, I do hope that on climate change we will get some more ambitious programs here and there. So maybe there's a grain of hope there. Dorian? Well, I share the impression, I, or I mean, I'm also not too optimistic looking at next year. Uh, I don't know if it's too early to have any kind of a hope that, you know, the situation gets better with the war, you know, some kind of an early dialogue in Geneva would be amazing, of course, but that's maybe just wishful thinking. More positive, I don't know. We ha There's a, also a new, uh, we haven't talked about a new ICRC president who's a the woman. The first woman, exactly. yeah. So that's positive and uh, perhaps, perhaps there's hope there. I'd... We'll see she's been quite quiet, which is perhaps why we haven't yeah. talked about her so much. She hasn't <laughs> said too much, unlike the new UN Human Rights Chief, but fair enough, very tough job, a very tough time. Maybe you want to get your feet under the table before you before you talk to to the likes of us. Mm. What about you, Nina, 2023? You know, I think things are have been moving so quickly that it's really difficult to to see where we're going. Like a year ago, I wouldn't have thought we could anything could overshadow Afghanistan, for instance. Mm. And now we're not even talking yeah. about Afghanistan, yeah. which is and the things haven't gotten any better there. So it's it's very difficult to sort of see which direction things are going. But I guess, 
obviously, you know, hunger and famine are, are huge worries, and it's something that we've uh, got to keep an eye on. On a more positive note, perhaps we could see an end to COVID, the, the pandemic, not COVID, but, you know, the pandemic could be declared over, perhaps. And, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. I think perhaps we can draw, because I said before, we need to look for a grain of optimism to end this program. Perhaps we could say that we know, because we work primarily in Geneva and on the in the humanitarian side of the United Nations and the International Committee of the Red Cross, that there are people who do at least try to make things better. And they are here and all over the world. And we report on them. So listen to our reports. On that note, thank you, Nina Larson, Dorian Burkhalter, Christian Ulrich. You've been listening to Inside Geneva. That's it from us for this week. Thank you all for listening. reminder you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening, and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Mm -hmm.